Today's reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 19, verses 1 to 14. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth the speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Wilma. What is God like? How do we know what God is like? Are we left to use our imagination to guess at what kind of person God is? Here's one child's attempt to do that, to picture what God might look like. Has God left us on our own to figure out what he's like? Not according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, he's not left us in the dark. He's not left us to puzzle or speculate about his character or what he's done. He has revealed himself. He has spoken, and he continues to speak, telling us of his character, telling us of his works. And Psalm 19, the psalm that Wilma just read for us, highlights two of the ways in which he does so. He speaks through his creation, the world that he's made, and he speaks through his word, the written word, the law. C.S. Lewis described this psalm as the greatest psalm in the Psalter. And one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And it's our privilege to look at this psalm together, this beautiful poem together this morning. The psalmist affirms that God speaks to us through his world and through his word. 
He describes how the world declares the glory of God and how the scriptures also speak of the glory of God. In the first six verses, he describes how God reveals himself to all of humanity through what he has made, through his creation, if you will. In the second half of the psalm, he turns to the law and refers to how God reveals his glory in the scriptures and the particular revelation that he gave to the nation of Israel. The psalm begins with a declaration, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Here the psalmist claims that God reveals something of his character through the world that he's made, and in particular through the skies. Look up and you'll see something of what God has to say to us. The skies may not use words, but they communicate clearly nonetheless. They're eloquent in declaring the greatness and the glory of the one who made them. This is God's world, and it testifies to his glory. And the psalmist refers to the splendor of the sun and of the sky, the sun and light by day, the moon and stars by night, reflect the glory of God. The psalmist is here, of course, drawing on the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1, the story of creation. There we read how God created the heavens and the earth, how he separated night from day and made the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. And all of that's captured here in Psalm 19. This world in which we live has not always existed. It's created. It had a beginning. And that beginning was not the result of chance or some great cosmic coincidence. It was the result of God's decision to create. And he created by a word. As we read Genesis 1, we read that God said, let there be light, and there was light. So in the first four verses of this psalm, the psalmist captures how the heavens reveal the character of God. And then in the middle of verse 4 and on to verse 6, he describes one particular feature of the heavens that declare the glory of God, the sun. And here he pictures the sun in very poetic terms. He says that God has pitched a tent for the sun in the heavens. And then in verses 5 to 6, he speaks of how at sunrise, the sun emerges like a bridegroom from his chamber, perhaps the marital chamber, and then runs across the sky from east to west like a warrior or an athlete from the eastern horizon to the western. The psalmist gives us here a beautiful picture of the sun rising and 
making its progress through the day across the sky. But what is most noteworthy in this description is that the sun does this at God's behest. It is the creator that pitched the tent for the sun in the sky. As Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary, God has assigned it its place to occupy and its course to run. The whole sky is its mere tent and track. It's important to recognize this because many people in the ancient world believed that the sun was divine. And they worshipped the sun. And the psalmist wants to make it very clear here that as magnificent as the sun is, it points to someone far more magnificent than in itself is. It points to its creator. And the psalmist is very careful here to distinguish between the creator and the creation between the creator and what he has made. In antiquity, it was common for people to use created things as the objects of worship. They took aspects of what God had made and gave to them the worship that belongs only to God. And so constantly in the Old Testament, God had to remind his people that He was one. There was one true God. And he had made everything. And nothing that he had made should be turned into an idol and should become the object of worship. You may recall how the prophet Isaiah exposed the folly of idolatry when he spoke of how people would take the same tree that they would cut down and part of it they would use for firewood. And the other part, they would fashion into an idol and worship it. How foolish to take something from creation and treat it as a god. We, of course, are far too sophisticated to make idols of stone or wood But the confusion of the creator and his creation is still with us. We see it in many ways, but one is in the beliefs of the proponents of New Age thinking, who argue that all of reality has a oneness. There's a wholeness to all of reality, so that even human beings can be described as being divine. We are all God. And there's that loss of the distinction between the creator and what the creator has made. The psalmist makes it very clear that we need to distinguish between the creator and his creation. He says the heavens declare the glory of God And that knowledge is available to everyone on the earth. The voice of the heavens, he says, goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. 
This is universal revelation. This is revelation that everyone is exposed to. The Apostle Paul picks up on that theme in Romans chapter 1, where he develops that idea of how God has revealed himself to everyone, that he has not just revealed himself to Israel through the scriptures, but that everyone has a knowledge of God. And in Romans 1.20 he writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that people are without excuse. His eternal power and divine nature can be seen in the world that he has made is available to every inhabitant of this globe. Along with the psalmist, Paul claims that God reveals himself through the world he has made. And everyone has access to that revelation from God. You may be aware that TCC supports Yost and Cheryl Pickard, who are serving as missionaries in Indonesia. Yost and I were colleagues at Taylor before they returned to Indonesia's missionaries. And Yost shared me, with me one day some research that anthropologists have done concerning the beliefs of hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers are those people in the world who survive by animals in the wild, by uh, vegetation that grows in the wild. They're pre-agricultural in that sense, if you will. We, of course, have hunter-gatherers in the world today, but in antiquity, of course, many people were hunter-gatherers. Anthropologists have studied the religious beliefs of hunter-gatherers, and the results of their studies are rather interesting. What Yost told me was that they found the following patterns in the beliefs of a wide variety of hunter-gatherer groups. Number one, that although they often believed in many spirits and even many gods, they generally believed in one supreme being one supreme being who was the creator of everything else that exists. Secondly, they believed that that supreme being lived above, that he was a celestial being. He, he lived either in the heavens, in the skies, or on a mountain, but somewhere above. Thirdly, they often saw God as father, either in a personal sense, individually, or in a tribal sense. God was the father of their tribe. Fourthly, they believed that this God did not have a body as we do, but was a spirit, that God was a spirit. They believed that this God was all-powerful. He could do anything. They believed that God was all-knowing. He knew 
even what people were thinking. Knowledge not just based on what he could observe, of what they did or what they said. They believed that this God was eternal, that he had always existed, he always would exist. And they believed that this God was good. And he provided the standard then for moral goodness. And he had laws that reflect his goodness that other people were to follow. And that's especially striking to me because if you think of the world in which the New Testament was born, the Greco-Roman world, Greco-Roman thought distinguished very sharply between religion and ethics. And the gods were not moral exemplars in the Greco-Roman world. Far from it. You didn't learn morality from religion in the Greco-Roman world. You learned it from the philosophers. But in hunter-gatherer societies, religion and ethics were tied together. I found this fascinating because so much of these beliefs that were common in hunter-gatherer societies, people who were very close to nature, much more so than any of us are today, had beliefs concerning God that are remarkably like the beliefs in the Judeo-Christian tradition concerning who God is. Why is that? Could it be because the heavens declare the glory of God? The character of God is reflected in the creation that he has made and that his creation bears witness to who he is. That's the message of the first half of Psalm 19. When we turn from verses 1 to 6 to verses 7 to 14, the psalmist moves from the glory of God in the heavens to the glory of God in a book, in the scriptures, in the law. He turns from the thought of God as the creator to God as the law giver. And here he speaks of how God conveys his revelation not through the world, but through his word. God speaks through his word. You may be aware that Psalm 119 is the longest of the Psalms in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful psalm, very well-known psalm. There are a number of texts in that psalm that we're very familiar with. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, comes from Psalm 119. And then there's another text that's a favorite of students everywhere, Psalm 119, verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers. Somewhat embarrassing for those of us who made our living teaching. Psalm 119 is a psalm that extols the beauty and the glory of the law. The second half 
of Psalm 19 is kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of Psalm 119. The longest psalm is compressed into these few verses. He also celebrates the greatness of the law, but does it much more concisely than Psalm 119. I want you to notice a few things concerning what he says about the law here. First of all, the terms that he uses to refer to the scriptures. In verse 7, he refers to the law of the Lord and the statutes of the Lord. In verse 8, he refers to the precepts of the Lord and the commands of the Lord. In verse 9, he refers to the fear of the Lord and the decrees of the Lord. There's a considerable variety of terminology here, but the basic idea is the same in each of these expressions. They all refer to the scriptures, and especially those portions of the scriptures that reveal God's will, that say something of God's expectations of humanity, and the kind of reverence and obedience that should be shown to his commands. It is said that there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. I would like to be able to tell you that I have counted them all myself so I can verify that that number is correct, but one of those commands says something about not lying, so perhaps I won't make that claim. But there are lots of commands in the Old Testament. Fortunately, they've been summarized very well and very beautifully in what we know as the Ten Commandments, one of the greatest combinations of moral guidance that we have in literature. So this psalm is extolling the scriptures, but especially the legal portions of the scriptures, the scriptures as they reveal God's will for us. But as we think of that, it's important to remember that the Old Testament doesn't just consist of laws. In fact, the majority of the Old Testament consists of other kinds of material, especially of narrative material. Narrative that describes what God has done rather than what God expects of us. And so much of the Old Testament is the narrative of God's saving work, what he does to redeem his people. Even the Ten Commandments themselves appear in that sort of context. Exodus 20, the first record of the Ten Commandments, says this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and so on. I am the God who delivered you from slavery. I am your Redeemer God. I am the God who has saved you, and therefore you shall have no other gods before me, and so on. 
when we think of what the psalmist says about the law of God, it's important for us to remember he's not describing here a legal system to which we must adhere if we're going to be accepted by God. That these are laws given in order that by keeping them, we might earn God's favor. And God will accept us because of what we have done. Now, what is being described here is the response of the redeemed. These are guidelines of how we ought to behave in the light of our experience of God's grace. Those who have experienced deliverance ought to express their gratitude for that deliverance through keeping these laws. So notice, first of all, the variety of terms used, but all of which express this idea of those things that reveal God's will for us. The second thing I want you to notice is the variety of adjectives that are used to describe the law. It is described as perfect and trustworthy in verse 7, as right and radiant in verse 8, as pure, firm, and righteous in verse 9, as more precious than gold and sweeter than honey in verse 10. The psalmist here just piles adjective on adjective, all of which are designed to show us that what the, God, what the law reveals about God is something admirable, something beautiful, something that is to be admired, something that is to be appreciated, indeed, something that is to be treasured. When we think of laws... We often think of things that limit our freedom. Laws, after all, often stop us from doing things that we would want to do if the law wasn't there. And so we think of laws as being restrictive, as being unpleasant, as being even oppressive. But that's not the way the law of God should be seen. The law of God is not something oppressive. It is a gracious gift. In God's laws, we see guidance for how God intended us to be as human beings. He made us in his image. And as we keep his laws, we fulfill what we were designed to be as his creation. The more we follow his guidelines, the more we reach fulfillment. The law of God might be compared to the tracks on which a train runs. As long as the train is running on the tracks, it makes good progress and it gets where it's intending to go. But what happens when it breaks free from the restrictions of the track, when it gets derailed, it's chaos. It's destruction. To be whom God intended us to be, we need to follow the guidelines that God has given us in Scripture. 
So we see a variety of terms used for the law. We see a number of adjectives used to describe it. Notice also what the scriptures do. He tells us they refresh the soul and make wise the simple in verse 7. They give joy to the heart and give light to the eyes in verse 8. They endure forever, verse 9. And they give warning and the promise of great reward for those who keep them, verse 11. The central idea in all of these expressions is that God has given us this revelation of his will for us, for our benefit. That these are laws that can be beneficial to us. They are for our good. They help us to gain understanding of our world and our place in this world. They give us wisdom to make good decisions and to avoid foolish decisions. They give us guidance towards living a life characterized by joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment. The law is given to be good for us, for our benefit. So the psalmist has described how God has revealed his glory in the world that he has made and in the word that he's given us in scripture. But as the psalmist turns his attention away from the skies and away from the scriptures and looks within, He's overcome by a feeling of unworthiness. What God has revealed about himself in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, in all of his goodness, reminds the psalmist that he has not responded to that revelation with the worship and the love and the obedience and the service that he ought. And so in verses 12 to 14, he prays for forgiveness and for deliverance from sin. In verse 12, he refers to hidden faults, perhaps acknowledging that our grasp of what God desires in our lives is only ever partial. We never fully understand all that's involved in God's will. And and so sometimes we sin unwittingly, not deliberately, not intentionally, but sin nonetheless, whether we're conscious of it or not. And then in verse 13, he mentions willful sins. And here he calls attention to those occasions when we know something is wrong and we go ahead and do it anyway, we're very well aware that this is not something we ought to be doing, but we do it anyway. Can you relate to that? Can you recall experiences in your life where that's exactly what you have done? 
whether the sins are unintentional, unwitting, or very deliberate and very conscious, the psalmist recognizes he is a sinner and therefore he needs forgiveness. And so in verse 12, he prays for pardon. He asks God for forgiveness. And not only does he ask for pardon, but he goes on to pray for strength to resist the temptations that will inevitably come in the future. So he asks for forgiveness for those sins in the past and for power to be able to resist temptation for those sins that would come in the future. And then he brings his psalm to a wonderful conclusion by praying that his words and thoughts would be pleasing to God. In other words, that not only will he avoid sin, but that what he does, no, more than what he does, what he says and what he thinks will be pleasing to God. And this is surely where what God has spoken ought to lead all of us to a sense of our own unworthiness, to the confession of our sin, and to the expression of this desire that even what we say and think might be pleasing to God. And we can do that. We can come to God asking for his mercy in the awareness that he is our rock and redeemer. That we come to him not as our prosecutor, the one who's there to bring the case against us and show how unworthy we are, but that stable redeemer who is filled with grace and mercy and is eager to accept those who return to him for forgiveness and for strength. Let's close by making the psalmist prayer our prayer. Please bow with me in prayer. And as we think of the prayer of the psalmist, make this personal. Make this your prayer as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.